I, I went from not taking any photographs to within a year or so working commercially and flying all over the world to Japan and Africa mm. and shooting ad campaigns mm. for IBM and yeah. ESPN and Microsoft. And it was just like mm. out of the frying pan at the fire sort of. Yeah, yeah. From Stockholm Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, this is The LPV Show, a weekly discussion from the world of photography and photo books. Here is your host, Brian Formals. So we're, uh, we're at your grand studio in Brooklyn. How long have you been in the studio? Um, I've been in this space for maybe two years, but before that I was upstairs, but I sort of got evicted. <laughs> Not evicted, but they, they built yeah. another floor on top, and then my the guy who had the space that I was subletting from sort of half the space and wanted double the rent. So luckily I knew the guy down here, and he was moving to LA, and he said, yeah, you can have this space. So it was the same rent, and it's actually bigger and lighter, so it worked. Awesome. Worked out well, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for having us. We really were honored to be here. Um, like I said, we're here with Graham McIndoe and Susan Stellan, and we're talking, going to be talking about your just published memoir called Chancers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to cover in the book. I finished it in about three days. I was read it kind of straight through, just got absorbed into it. Obviously, knowing Graham um, and meeting you the few times, I was very kind of interested to know, you know, kind of some of the details. Because I'd only heard about, you know, some of the, the addiction and those sort of things, but I didn't really know the story. So I was like, I got into it. And I was like, once I got into it, I was like, man, this is really good. So there's going to be a lot to unravel about the book, but I kind of want to take a little bit of a step backward for our audience to give them a little bit of background just on both of you. Because one one thing that I really liked about the book was its New Yorkness, I guess. It was kind of a, it's a New York story as well as you know, a story of love and addiction and art and these sort of things. And I really kind of like the New York angle as well, too. And neither of you, like many of us, are from New York City. So I kind of just wanted to start. Um, perhaps, Graham, you can tell us, you, how did you get to New York? Why did you come to New York? And, you know, what brought you here from across the pond? Um, I first came here when I was a student in the mid-80s, I think. I came with a girlfriend of mine. I came for the summer, like a couple of months in the summer. And I I was studying painting at the time. I was a painting student. And I really liked it. I was like, hmm, I got to come back here one day. But then I went back and it sort of slipped my mind. And then I had a kid. And then I sort of decided with my then wife that, you know, if we're going to go, we might as well just go on and get it over our system. And I came in 1992 and I didn't go back again. I've been here ever since. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that's what sort of brought me here was just that just that desire to go and experience New York. And I really had no idea how long we would stay for or what it would bring to me, you know. But uh, like a lot of people who I've met, they come and they just never go back. You know, right. it's like you're trapped. Right, right. But so how did you get started in, in the photography world? Because you had a pretty high-flying career in the 90s. Yeah, I, I studied painting, mm. but I sort of... I, I took a bunch of photographs when I was here, when I was a painter, thinking I could do paintings for them, but I liked the photographs so much that I printed photographs from it. And then a guy who ran a gallery in Edinburgh uh, introduced and was teaching photography at the art school that I didn't even know there was a photography department. He introduced himself to me and says, hey, your pictures are pretty good, but your printing's terrible. And he essentially gave me a box of record rapid, Agfa record rapid paper, uh, 16 by 28, showed me how to print a really good print with dodging and burning, locked mm-hmm. me in the dark room for a weekend and says, you can do it. Nice. And 
that's really how it happened. He introduced me to a couple of other photographers. He showed me all his book collection. He was a really avid photography guy. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got into photography. And then, so how, what about you, you, you're shooting commercially, you're shooting for magazines and you, you kind of yeah. got immersed right in that, into that world. Well, it was a slower trajectory. When I first came here, I had to get a visa and be mm-hmm. here legally. Mm-hmm. So I had to get someone to sponsor me and I had no commercial photography work. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to be a commercial mm-hmm. photographer, to be honest. I loved photography. I loved, I'd worked in a gallery in London a little bit. And I liked the curatorial aspect of it. I liked photo books. I liked working with artists. So I worked for like five or six years for two different galleries. I worked for Bonnie Ben Ruby Gallery and then Howard Greenberg Gallery. Worked with a lot of great photographers and, you know, got to curate shows with people like Robert Adams, Joe Perez, Imogen Cunningham Trust, you know, Inga Morath, a whole bunch of other people. And, you know, that was really great for me, but it was limited in terms of where I could go from there and make a decent living. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine that was at the Royal College, who was a designer, asked me to shoot something for him and I shot it and it won a few awards and it was an annual report for AMFA, American Foundation for Aid Research. And it sort of took off from there, you know, I was I was amazed that I could make that amount of money so quickly. And that people really liked my work, you know, and I'd never really worked commercially uh-huh. before. So I sort of took it from there, you nice, know. Nice, So let's, we'll jump over to Susan now. So Susan, you are from Michigan, correct? I'm from Michigan. I'm from um, Minnesota, so we're fellow Midwesterners. So that, that, right. that part of when you're talking about going back to when the book was kind of resonated a lot with me too, I kind of understood that mentality. So you were from Michigan and you went to Stanford. How, yeah. So how did you get to New York City? Well, after college, um, I lived in San Francisco for a while and then went down to Argentina for a couple of years and then came back and I was in San Francisco working for an internet startup in the mid-1990s and then met someone at a conference and he sort of introduced me to somebody at the New York Times and I originally came here in 1998 to work for the New York Times website, so kind of like Graham, I didn't know how long I was going to be here or, you know, maybe had this idea, well, I got to try it, you know. I had been in California a long time and, you know, the dot-com boom was happening and um, I came here and, like, many people just haven't left. So, <laughs> right, right. You know. So is that, and were you did, you, did you always have aspirations to be a writer? Was that always what you wanted to do? I always wrote things, I mean, it's funny, I... Was, had just unearthed a bunch of journals that I kept, but I also um, made little books, you know, when I was in elementary school, as, as you do, <laughs> and written and illustrated. Um, and in, I had been working as an editor and did some writing for this internet startup, but, you know, I think I just sort of got in the back door in terms of coming to the New York Times at that point. You know, I hadn't my first published clip was in the New York Times, and you know, if I hadn't been someone who was writing about the internet and knew the internet, that never would have happened. So, you know, I do enjoy editing and I, I've kind of enjoyed doing both, but, um, you know, so yeah, I think writing was always at the back of my mind, but being able to make a career out of it, you know, that turned into something that I was very lucky to happen onto. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're, we're talking two professions, <laughs> photography and writing in, the, in New York City that are both kind of extraordinarily difficult. To make a living at and have, they each have their own challenges and kind of and I, it's, I kind of come from both backgrounds well as a communication major journalism writing and all that stuff and I 
originally decided I did not want to go down that path of working at a small town newspaper and like, you know, cover it in local government. So, you know, um, I kind of went more into the screenwriting, those sort of things, and then got writer's block and I ended up with photography. So I kind of, that's one aspect I like about <laughs> this as well, too, is you guys have this, you know, the, that, the mix of photography and writing that all comes together. So let's get into the book. So you both are now in New York City. We've got you here. And you guys can probably tell the story better than me, but you met out in Montauk one summer. And it was in a shared house where what people do in New York, where they go out and like, I haven't done it. I don't know if Tom's had, had that experience yet, yeah. but well, that's, that's... When it used to be affordable. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. when you say this is a very New York story, I mean, also part of the process of writing is realizing how much of that has changed. You know, that yeah. used to be when you could rent a beach house, and we were both trying to remember how much we each spent to mm-hmm. have access to that, you know, and you can't touch that now for the same amount, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, so we, it was a group of people. Um, there were a few photographers, film editor, people who worked in advertising, some media people, and, you know, just had gotten together and had a share house. And so Graham and I had overlapped a couple or three weeks weekends during that summer, which was 2002. And, um, you know, then where the book jumps ahead is that we had just met, you know, Graham is someone being Scottish and his personality, I think I wrote, makes an impression, you know. <laughs> yeah, I just started, yeah. I was with yeah. a very close friend of mine whose wife had recently died of cancer. He was the same age as me and uh, he subsequently moved back to London, but he was in a sort of weird transitional space. I thought he was as well and we were both drinking too much mm-hmm. and going a bit crazy. So we were in this like summer house where everybody was going out there to chill for yeah. the weekend and yeah. we were sort of gone mental a wee bit, I think <laughs> you would call it, you know, which was entertaining for a little bit and then I'm sure it was annoying after a little while, but yeah. that's just where I was at at that time. And I had just, I mean, I had to, I mean, I had to laugh, I had to chuckle that see, you needed, you had a book coming out and you needed a portrait and you met this photographer and. Well, it was years later. I had written a book. um, It was kind of a guidebook to planning and booking and troubleshooting travel, which is what I'd been writing about for the New York Times. And so this was kind of just as everybody was starting to book their own travel. And, you know, it was pretty encyclopedic. So, you know, five years later in 2005, that's when I had needed an author photo and I emailed Graham. And the first time I emailed him, you know, it didn't really happen. And then by the end of the year, I was really needed the photo, the book was going to press. So that was when I went over to his house to get my portrait taken. And um, after that was when we first started dating. That's kind of, yeah, so that's kind of where where everything kind of kicks off. So I wanna, I mean, we're gonna, from that juncture on, now it's where it gets kind of really complicated and complex. And the first thing I do wanna talk about too is that this, like how the book came about, like how, you know, because reading it and even just meeting, I was like, man, this is, I can't, I don't know how people do this, how they can like go into, this, go, go into this level of detail about these experiences, this level of intimacy, um, you know, because it is very raw, it's very real. And like, you feel it like all the way through. It's like, man, like you're just exposing yourself. So at what point were you guys, did you sit down like, okay, we're ready to do this. We want to do this. And we're we're gonna we're gonna make it happen, you know. Is there was there? I think yeah. I think Susan can explain this because she'd written little bits of mm-hmm. it previously, and then it the trajectory that ended up it being a dual memoir was. Uh, you can explain it better. Well, I think that 
it was always a story, you know, and there were pieces of it that um, we had already, you know, I'd tried to write about a scene that became one of the chapters in the book where, you know, Graham had gotten arrested and I went to go bail him out and because of some weird quirk in what was going on in New York City that day and a broken fax machine in Manhattan, I actually had to go out to Rikers Island to bail him out and that was just such a kind of impactful experience for me. You know, I had started to write about that many years ago, um, which is partly in the middle of the book. Um, but as far as when it actually be became something that we wanted to do as a book, I think that I needed that um, Graham's permission in some way. And so, you know, during the time that he was still using and that he was an addict, I felt like, you know, even when I showed him that story, it was kind of exposing him, and even when he said it was okay, you know, I think we both have this feeling about can someone who's really in the throes of addiction consent to letting you use their story? You know, was he saying that out of guilt? And, you know, I just felt like it wasn't the right time. And by the time we came around to actually making the decision to start working on a book proposal, Graham had been out of prison, you know, he was getting back on his feet. He had gone through these self-portraits he took when he was using and was already starting to think about publishing those. And I think once he made that decision that he was going to sort of come out about what had happened to him, not just the addiction part, but the part about having gone to jail first and then ended up in immigration detention, then it felt like, you know, we're just going to be all in about this, you know. So, um <laughs> And I think it, like you said, the story is really complex. And even when we did a proposal and had written some sample chapters, you know, some of the response was, wow, you know, this is, it's not just a book about addiction. It's not just a book about a relationship. And it's not just about immigration and deportation. And then there's two narrators, you know, and people... I think in general, especially sort of in the marketing world, they want to be able to say, this is a biography of Andy Warhol, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so here we are with this thing that's very different, mm -hmm. you know, just by the nature of having two narrators yeah. and then also several topics yeah. we go through. So that like structurally, that's kind of, I think one of the really interesting ways that how you move this story forward. And even, I thought it was very clever. Sometimes you, you'll end one chapter by Susan and then Graham will kind of you, takes you back to the middle of that, you know. So you, you kind of have this shift in time that happens with the narration. It's very subtle and done really well. But I always thought that was kind of an interesting aspect of it as well, too. So like structurally, going back and forth that way and pushing the narrative forward and making sure you cover everything. How, like creatively, I mean, that's, you know, you're not a writer. You don't have right. writer. How, how did you kind of conceptualize that? Was that something you came up th with, Susan? Or I was think it was, it sort of grew, mm -hmm. but it was Susan's thing because I, I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. I can write very visually and very, and I write too much and I write mm -hmm. longhand and it's hard for Susan. <laughs> it was very difficult at times, you know, because I thought everyone was important because I'd been mm -hmm. through this crazy experience. So I would write, you know, Susan says, just write something for the end of this chapter and I'd come back with piles of pages. <laughs> what? Yeah. You know, but I think that, you know, Susan had better ideas about the compression and expansion of time and how to play with time elements in writing because he's an accomplished writer and done it for a long time. Things that I didn't realize at the time and have learned since, you know. So, you know, I think that, you know, that helped me a lot 
Susan's ability to, to understand and know right, and then she's mm -hmm. an avid reader as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas I read, but I'm not that mm -hmm. avid, you know. I read a few things, you know. But well, and there was also it, the outline changed, you know. So the advantage of having done a proposal is that we had pretty much sketched it out, and then originally it was going to be a book about half that length, and it was going to be mostly be my perspective with Graham jumping in, and then things were happening in the world, you know, Ferguson happened, there started to be much more of a dialogue about, you know, mass incarceration, and then as our discussions with, you know, our editor and the publisher went along, you know, there got to be more interest in what was going on with Graham, and, you know, some of the stuff about his interactions with the police, his time at Rikers Island, and then even some of the more detailed parts about heroin addiction, you know, it, yeah, it's it phenomenal how much things have changed in terms of being able to talk about heroin. You know, this book and really effectively starts in 2006, and in the last decade, you know, that has really changed dramatically. So to be able to write a book and, you know, now have it be something you can more acceptably talk openly about. Yeah, because you, I mean, so heroin and crack were the drugs you went kind of all in on describing uh -huh. that experience and how it kind of just slowly, you know, got a hold of you. I mean, like, it, it, I, I guess it's kind of, you know, how how do you kind of go back to the that place? Because like, even, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, imagine like, you know, people like, you know, sometimes you drink too much. And, oh, man, you know, but this is a whole other level of right, kind of yeah. like going I mean, to... It, it was difficult because yeah. I'm writing in the moment, so I had yeah. to. I would come here, and uh, Yoshi and Tamara would laugh at me because I'd come in here and I'd be, I got to write, guys, and I'd put on my headphones, no music around, just yeah. to put myself in that world, and I'd sit and I'd write notes, and then I'd start my process of going back. But I used different devices. I used the photographs. A lot mm. of the photographs that I took, I actually, I even found got access to my old bank balances and uh, went back through them and I could track my trajectory and my drug mm. use by how much money I was spending. Where I was withdrawing, I'd be like, oh, I withdrew this money in Queens at three in the morning on a Saturday night mm -hmm. seven years ago or, wh or whatever it was. And I, you know, and then you slowly, it's like building a puzzle that starts coming back to you. And, and it, there was great things came back to me that I hadn't remembered and then there was painful things came back to me that I was just like, oh shit, you know, and then, you know, and that was difficult, you know. I mean, it, it was traumatizing for both of us at points, and there was a lot of times we questioned why we were doing it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm -hmm. an easy sort of like journey, but we stuck with it. But there were there was moments certainly I had meltdowns. <laughs> where I just thought, what the hell am I doing here? Why yeah. are we doing this? Yeah. We questioned that quite a few times, but you know, we kept at it. We had friends who were encouraging and who read little bits and stuff like that. And you know, as you said, we were all in. We might as well do it properly, you know. But it, it was difficult, and I had to. And there was bits where I just I knew what I wanted to write, and I just didn't know mm -hmm. how to do it. And I had to ask Susan for help there, yeah. and what she would do in those times was she would interview me or she'd give me bullet points and say start on this and start on that and you know this little thing here needs this amount and this big thing here needs that amount you know and it was again the compression and expansion of yeah. time and events and places and significant happenings you know mm -hmm. so I mean without Susan's guidance I would never have been able mm -hmm. to do it you know people kept saying to me oh you should write a book and I'm just like well yeah that's like saying yeah. to somebody you should do a paint another short moment it's yeah. like how can I do that yeah well I mean it's I mean let's talk about drugs a little bit because you're in the art world and drugs you know it's you know there's the whole history of artists and you know drug addicts and a lot of unfortunate stuff people 
dying from mm-hmm. it. And like there is a certain kind of like romantic kind of perspective of it to some degrees. What I liked about you, the way you did it is you just kind of like went right at it. You didn't like romanticize it, but you didn't necessarily always like vilify it either. Right. You know what I mean? You kind of went to those honest places where you're like, you know what? When I do this, it takes everything away and it feels freaking great. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. And I thought like going just right at it and like being, you know, kind of writing it as if it, almost like a documentary photograph. Here it is. Here's what it is, how I felt like, you know, you, you never really kind of romanticize it. But on the other hand, it didn't feel like you were preaching about it either. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult middle line to find is because uh, number one because there's been a lot of memoirs written about addiction yeah. and you know people have seen movies about addiction so you're treading on a well-trodden path mm-hmm. same as being a photographer in many ways you <laughs> yeah. know you're like you're, you're in the wake of many people you know so you've got to find your own voice and that was a hard thing for us was to try and find that voice without stepping on anyone else's toes mm-hmm. and you do get a lot of sort of bravado in the memoir world, like, hey, you know, or you get a lot of glorifying, or you get the really depressing one where you're just like, at the end of it, you want to slit your wrist, you're just yeah. like, wow, I wish I'd never read that. So finding that very matter-of-fact thing, I mean, we spent a lot of time sort of working out the, the language and the voice and how we were going to deliver these things, you know, and, uh, you know, it came and went, and it was the development, you know, so... yeah. Because you didn't always get too hung up, you know, on, like, the, the minutia of it as well, too. You, like, you had to, you know, move the story forward and kind of really find that, that narrative. Now, on your perspective, obviously, you're, you know, you're kind of dealing with this. And you're, you can't imagine, like, you just be in a world where all of a sudden, like, heroin and crack, like, like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's being exposed to that is, like, most of us just kind of hear it secondhand or it's maybe something casual. And here it is, like, right in your face and that's kind of when we talk about those New York stories I'm sure that's kind of like not necessarily the New York experience you were kind of prepared for because this is a, it's a completely different world and in the book you really I, how you kind of really struggled with that you know with how much you cared for him but then also kind of like I'm dealing with this world that I do not understand like how how is your kind of feelings about like drugs changed just from you know, being that close to it. Well, it's changed. It changed during the time that the book covers, but it's also changed having now written about it and really had to make sense of things that happen and try to understand, you know, things that only by really pressing Graham and asking him these questions and why did you do this or why didn't you do this? Um, And also, actually, we interviewed a lot of other people who know both of us. So Mm -hmm. there was that process where, you know, some of the things that maybe Graham didn't remember that well, his brother, sister, you know, I talked to them. You know, we talked to his son a lot and various friends. And so that sort of helped fill in parts of his life that I I hadn't been part of. But as far as kind of that learning curve on addiction and particularly those kinds of drugs... Um, you know, I think that once it became something that people could talk more openly about, and, you know, there was a point where I was reading a lot of other memoirs, um, trying to understand where Graham was at, and, you know, that elusive question, why can't he quit, you know? And I think, too, because as part of the rehab program he got into in prison, he had to do so much writing that for the book we had access to all those assignments that he wrote and then also he had we'd written each other a lot of letters so a lot of the making sense of it actually was easier because we had that source material and this was 
really raw and exactly how Graham was feeling just as he's in the midst of this intense 16-week rehab program where he's having to tell me this is what I was doing three years ago and, you know, I can now admit it or be honest about it. So as a writer and as a writer who's been a reporter, that was really compelling. It was like, wow, who else would have this rich trove of information? That was also partly why we felt like, you know, you almost have to do a book because there's so much that we had to benefit from. Yeah, and I was I like what you said, but using his assignments and a key thing in the book too is the the emails and all of like that very evidentiary document. Like you have that stuff, and that is born of the digital age, right? Like having those correspondences that you can go back and be like, it's it's all there. And I thought that when once I kind of like picked up on, oh, this is part of the narrative drive is going to be using these emails and these these these. You, know, you did a lot of letter writing as well too when he was in prison so you had all of that material and like I, to me like whenever like those little bits came up there was just kind of like that that emotional jolt so was that you know how did that kind of come about where we we're like we're gonna we have to use this well I think partly I mean for do, doing an addiction memoir you always have that issue of truth right so you're very constantly aware of you know a million little pieces and um, other memoirs just in general that people have read and there's been maybe some controversy about. So I think part of it was trying to address that, that would we knew was going to be out there. And then also just, you know, you tend to not remember how you felt, right? So then when you, you have that evidence right in front of you, well, this is what I was thinking or feeling, you know, the inclination is, well, I couldn't write it better now than how I wrote it then. And Fortunately, our relationship covered this time where people wrote emails like they were letters, you <laughs> yeah. know, and if it had happened a few years earlier or a few years later, you know, like yeah. now our text messages are, you know, just leaving the gym, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we yeah, couldn't yeah. recreate the last five years yeah. on nearly the same level yeah. of detail. Yeah. No, I think that is because, like, you know, I'm internet kid myself, and right when I went to college in 1999, it was the same thing. You'd write your friends, like, these epic emails. Like, even, right, yeah. you know, men writing to men, like, these huge, like, everything you're doing, like, this fascination with, like, being able to correspond over email. So I thought that was, like, having that in there. Um, to me, it was really kind of made it feel like president, too. So we got to get to prison, Rikers Island. Mm -hmm. You're in Rikers Island for five months, correct? Four months. Four months. Four months I got six months, I said four. So that's, and like that, when you're describing what's going on in Rikers Island, it's kind of one of those things where you live in New York City and you read, you know, kind of peripherally of some of the stuff on Rikers Island, it's, oh, that's, that's terrible, you know what I mean? But then you kind of go back to your daily life and it's not there. When I was reading your, your experiences there, I was like, this is, this is not pleasant. <laughs> this is, you really, I mean, and you're, I mean, again, it's like, you know, it's part of it too is like a white privileged man going into yeah, yeah. a prison and it's like, there had to been like, it's really bad. This is, this sucks. This is not a good place. Yeah, to it be. was pretty traumatizing. Not yeah. only because I was kicking heroin, mm -hmm. you know, during that process, which was painful enough, you know, the physicality and the emotional down and everything like that but then the realization as that started to sweep away was that i'm in rikers island and i'm in rikers island not for a weekend or a week but i'm in rikers island sentenced to six months mm -hmm. and i know i've got to do at least four that was that was rough for me you know because the way they 
treated you, you know, the whole thing with the strip searches and the sort of lack of dignity and everything like that is phenomenal. It was phenomenal to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you really get treated badly and you really, you know, feel like, you know, you feel other, otherish, you know, like, and, and also, as you said, as a white person mm-hmm. who'd come from a pretty privileged, you know, higher and background, you're I'm immediately immersed into people of a completely different demographic. I mean, at one point, I was like the only white guy in my dorm, you know. There was, you, as a white person in Rikers Island, you're very few and far between. But as a white guy that might have come from, you know, my background, that's even less chance, you know. The only other guy was, that I could just saw there was the guy that tried to bribe Letterman, David uh-huh. Letterman, he was there at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean... It was an eye-opener to me, because like you, I'd heard of Rikers, and everybody knows about Rikers. We've all seen movies where bits were in Rikers and stuff like that, but once you're actually in there, mm-hmm. it was a real eye-opener to me, you know. And uh, and it's not that I was particularly scared for my well-being. Mm-hmm. It was just crushing, you know, the, being incarcerated and being told what to do and where to go, and, and just and the boredom factor, and then just the, the mindlessness of all these people just being like, the waste of people just locked up. Mm-hmm. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people locked up on that island. It's yeah. just, it's just crazy. And one of the things that maybe you have to correct me on this, but you see, even like on the gangs on the inside too, like they're doing business, right? Like they're still doing, like they're they're conducting. Because everybody wasn't there an excerpt where you said kind of like it's a they it's a sign of the accomplishment when they get to go. To, to prison as a gang member. And then, yeah, there's different elements yeah. with the gangs, you know. I mean, people are still, just because they're locked up, they have access to phones and they're still doing business. Yeah. And they, they still got their street hustle and swagger, as they say, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I mean, and it's just recidivism's massive, you know. Mm-hmm. People, are, I was like one of the only people that was my first time in there. I mean, I'd spent a couple of weekends and small, in transit between getting discharged or bailed out. But people who'd spent serious amounts of time there, months and months, most people that I was in there were had been in there several times. Mm-hmm. So it was not. I'm not saying it's like a home for home, but they knew the system, they knew how to get around that, they knew the the way to get through that mm-hmm. their bid. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, it was just like I was like a fish out of water. I was just like, wow, you yeah. know. I mean, but even having said that, I did. I'm not saying it was ever pleasant and it was ever great, but. You learn how to make your little niche, your little thing. You got your friends, you do your things, you got your job, and you make it as good as you can for yourself. You avoid the trouble, you do this, you do that, and you get through every day. Mm-hmm. And you just basically repeat it every day. You know, you get up, you go to work, you come back, you go to the yard, you go to work again, mm-hmm. you play cards, you shower, you talk to your pals, yeah. you read a book, you go to bed. Yeah, it's not like in New York where you gotta, you're planning dinner parties, you can go to the Mets again. <laughs> no, and you don't have to yeah. work like the F train's working around yeah, like exactly. that. It's just, you know, and as I said, you know, I can see how people get somewhat comfortable. It's not pleasant, but at the same time, there's ways of making it all right and doable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's bad. Trust me, it's bad. And you don't want to be there. But, you know, even those moments when I could go to the yard and just lie on my back in the grass mm-hmm. and watch the planes take off for LaGuardia and see the Manhattan skyline in the distance. Yeah, you're incarcerated on a island penitentiary (laughs) you know the water but at the same time there's that there were those moments where I was just glad I wasn't an addict yeah you know yeah so Susan you so how when you're experienced you start to kind of like gradually learn about his experience and what's going on with him was that for you 
is that, did you kind of have something in your mind that said, this is, how is this, you know, this is how people are treated in the United States, you know, my country, you know, like, was there, like, I kind of got that sense that when you started fighting for me, it was like, it became that, like, this, the cultural state, this is messed up. This, yeah. is, this is not just Graham. This is like, something is off here, you know? So you have that dual of like, hey, you know, obviously you're, you know, working with him, but then you have this other kind of, these other ideas about what's going on with the prison system. And we had Pete Brook on last um, season as well too, and his whole thing is on prison photography and like um, kind of battling like the United States prison system. So it's interesting, I think I've seen like over the last few years through his that it has the conversation has kind of like picked up and you are learning more about it. So was this kind of really eye-opening for you to see that this is how it actually is on the inside? Or was it something? Well, I think it was maddening, you know, mm -hmm. that more than anything else that, you know, there were sort of two layers of it was, well, three really. I mean, just the war on drugs and kind of the interaction between the police and then drug addicts. And, you know, when there had been a search of Graham's home and going inside and finding out that the cops, you know, I, we had broken up, but I'd still had a key at that point and they just had destroyed his house looking for drugs. And, you know, then later on, you know, when he had been actually sentenced to the time at Rikers Island, I mean, we had broken up and I had lost touch with him. So um, I had just, I thought he'd overdosed, you know, and I had, was trying to find out where he was and reached out to his ex-wife and she said, well, you know, he's been in jail, he got arrested and, you know, but, I mean, it's strange to say, but there was a sense of relief mm -hmm. for me to hear that because everybody knew where Graham was headed. And, you know, there is this sense that when someone, you know, and it's, it's a trajectory, you know, so there is this functional addict and then you stop being able to function. And then, you know, for someone in Graham's situation, it's almost like he's so not himself anymore that... You know, it's weird to say, but finding out that he was in jail was like, okay, he's safe, you know? And even knowing that you can get drugs there, it's like, well, and she had said to me, you know, he's doing pretty well, you know, he's clean. And so it wasn't really until the end of that, that I, his, his time there that I found out where he was and that, but the flip side was that because he's not a U.S. citizen, even though he has a green card, I had warned him for years, mm -hmm. you know, you're jeopardizing that. This could turn out really bad for you if you get arrested. So the, the, once he was in immigration detention, yeah. I mean, that was just very galvanizing mm -hmm. for me because it was such an unjust situation. And that's, that, that's kind of really where, you, as bad as Rikers is, that was really the startling really at the part of the book where you're just like, I, I started getting pissed off. I was like, this is what, are you kidding me? Like it's, it's enraging. It really is. You know? So you're trying to, in the book, you're following like your guys' story, but on the other side, just your blood is just boiling. Like, you know, well, and how was that? I mean, and like that is, is, you know, connected, like you said, back to nine 11 and like the, you know, war on terror, all these different things that are kind of like, you know, manifest because of all of that stuff and then here you are in a situation where you're in immigration detention and what that's just i don't know like that i feel like that part of it really kind of made me question like how in the hell does this happen in the united states and i just kind of felt like that was you know 
how does that happen in the United States? How are we treat how how does this country treat, treat people that way when we have so many ideals that people aspire to? And it's really this is this is what we do. You know? Well, it happens largely because it happens in secret. You know, so most people don't know, um, and part of the reason they don't know is that there's a lot of misinformation out there about who's caught up in deportation proceedings, and it's not just people who are undocumented. You know, but that's what the media reports, and that's what the government conveniently sort of suggests. Um, people who've crossed the border, and you know, you can't get good statistics about how many people have green cards or they had some visa or they came here seeking asylum. So, you know, once Graham got sucked into that and realizing, you know, even when I would tell people, there was this kind of I think that in this country, as much as there's this frustration with government, we like to think that we're above that. And until you get pulled into that, or if you're someone who's grown up, you know, being stopped and frisked constantly by the police, you already know, you know, that we're not meeting those ideals. But, you know, in terms of that immigrant experience here, um, because it's so in the shadows and because immigrants have just become such a scapegoat, um, I think that's how it happens, that people, you know, even my interactions with the guards, you know, there, there would be these differences, but this almost sense of the, these are people aren't human beings in the same way that you and I are. And then you'd be so grateful to come across someone who realized, well, yeah, they are human beings. And, you know, there was a guard that um, had taken Graham to the dentist because he yeah. miraculously got approved to have a impacted wisdom tooth um, taken out and you know in that section of the book you know this guy had Scottish ancestors so you know he had kind of really bonded with Graham and I happened to run into him later when I visited and you know Graham had told me about him so you know and he had said to me you know we feel bad a lot of us feel bad about what's happening here we know it's not right so you're those months there, you really have no idea. You, mean, you kind of go back and forth. Like they do everything they can to just make you sign and like get out, leave, right? And like yeah, that was the thing where you could, you had the potential of just ending this. Like I can get out of here if I just, I'm gonna yeah, go back I'm, home. Or, and, or at least to make you feel that's the case. Yeah. But you know, I know people that tried to sign it and it still took them months to get travel documents and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. And I didn't have a passport or my green card at mm -hmm. that point. I'd lost them somewhere along the line. So it would have been difficult for me. But mm -hmm. I was already in touch with the consulate just in case, the mm -hmm. British consulate, just in case that was gonna happen. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on you to sign up. You know, there's a lot of pressure, even from the minute they picked me up at Rikers Island, the guys in the van, the Homeland Security mm -hmm. van, are saying it's better for you if you sign up, it's better for you. If, you know, and they, they fudge the language and they present you with papers to sign mm -hmm. and it's like, and I kept seeing people signing, signing, and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm signing and I'm asking for lawyers and you can't get lawyers because you don't get a lawyer and it's like, it's very, very confusing mm -hmm. as to what's right to do and what's not to do and they're telling you it's right and they're telling mm -hmm. you this is the rules and this is what's happening and it's like, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. But they imply that that's the case, you know, so, I mean, once you get swept up in that, it's hard to get at, you mm -hmm. know, especially the further you get moved from New York. Mm -hmm. New York judges are reasonably understanding I mean it's like about 50-50 or something like mm -hmm. that that you might get released but the further you get away the less chance of that isn't it mm -hmm. and then a lot of people end up in sort of Louisiana or Texas or one of these mass 
deportation states, you know, mm-hmm. and once you get done there, it's like the the judges and the people overseeing mm-hmm. it are just like, you're gone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very debilitating place to be mm-hmm. mentally because you don't get any of those things that the people are given in the normal criminal justice mm-hmm. that are incarcerated. Like, you, you, there's a lot of rights you don't get. And I had no outdoor space. I never went outside once. Mm. You know, it was very difficult to get mail. You know, I, I couldn't get a job mm. to work in the prison because I was a detainee in an immigration detention center that's run by a private company. It's like, there's just so many things that come into it that just make it horrendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, really horrendous. There was no, got in the library, there was limited newspapers, you know, mm. maybe if a corrections officer left one Yeah, I mean, line. Kafka couldn't write any better, you know? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's just, it's designed to make you feel so bad you'll mm-hmm. sign up. And when holiday times come in, I was in there for like 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, people just sign up. Mm-hmm. They're just like, they're totally destroyed by then. It's just like crap time of the mm-hmm. year to be, you know, so my case actually came forward a little bit mm-hmm. because a lot of people signed up yep. and they brought mine forward. But, you know, I've never seen... It had an incredible effect on me because I'd never seen so many people cut up some that they had no control over or knowledge over and they were just so torn mm-hmm. because they were tor- most people are torn away from family and friends and they've made lives and especially people fighting to stay were generally people with some sort of legal status mm-hmm. and with families and kids and jobs and houses. Mm-hmm. People with green cards, a lot of them, you know, because they have something to fight for. If you're undocumented, it's pretty hard to make a case. Mm-hmm. But if you've been here since, and some of them were people who'd been here since they were one or two, mm-hmm. and they're getting deported retroactively mm-hmm. for something they did when they were 17, 18, 19, 20, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And the pain that I saw some people go through is, it's something I can never forget or get rid of, you know. It's like, it's always there in the back of my head, you know? So is this, obviously, if you're listening to this, you should read the book because the story's multi-layered. There's a lot of stuff going on, but obviously you got out. Yes. You're back, you're here, you know. But you got your kill. I'm gonna wanna, people gotta go buy the book. We don't wanna give everything away. There's a lot of details. But what came out of that is you guys ended up collaborating on another project called American Exile. And that was really about people in that limbo. And I remember seeing that you had the show down at Photoville. Mm-hmm. Two, was it two years ago now? No, no last year. 2015. Yeah, last so year. Last last year. year. Yeah. So it was last year. And wh- how do you come about, like, we have to tell these stories? Like, this is just something you have to do. I mean, it's, and it again, combines the photography and the, the journalism. And it's like, you know, it's a pretty you know, devastating documentary project, really. I mean, it's really, you know, sad. And, like, how, at what point did you guys were like, we got we to gotta do something, we got to tell these stories? I think part of it was feeling that obligation because Graham did win his case and he did get out. And, you know, one of the people in the project is someone that he met while he was in detention and he didn't win his case. You know, he's an electrician from Philadelphia. He'd been in a bar fight when he was a young man. You know, he came here on a green card when he was a baby um, and ended up getting picked up by immigration 11 years after that bar fight. You know, he's got three kids in the U.S. and got deported to Belfast. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
we were also motivated to tell the types of stories and the range of stories that people don't hear. So, you know, someone who came and got picked up at the airport because he entered on a visitor's visa and happened to tell the agent that he was there to see his fiance. Well, he needed a fiance visa, you know, just these crazy stories we would find. And, and then I also spent a lot of time trying to look for people and find people who were willing to tell their story and be photographed. Mm-hmm. And how was it for you photographing? I mean, like, it's got to be, there ha- you have that almost an undescribable connection, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it, I mean, I think that it made it a lot easier. It's not like we were strangers parachuting in for an editorial shoot. <laughs> yeah. And we're just <laughs> yeah. like, hey, we've got three hours to shoot your portrait and get a story yeah. and then get out of there, you yeah. know. Because there was a lot of lead up. There was a lot of emailing people, talking on the phone before mm-hmm. we even got anywhere near them, you know. And there was a lot of you know, reaching out to people that were sympathetic, wanted to do it, but then felt they couldn't or, you know, whatever. There was a, you know, a lot of people we reached out to that had great stories, amazing stories that needed to be told, but they were just, you know, they'd had run-ins with Homeland Security and the government, so that, you know, it was very brave of people to share their story Mm -hmm. and tell us what they'd been through and what it was like, and they didn't hold back, and, you know, we were very appreciative of that, but I think it would have been hard if we hadn't been able to relate to the same pain they'd been through because I'd already been in detention and Susan had already helped me and she, you know, that that dynamic really helped people open up to us and really helped us get, you know, great interviews and and sort of really nice pictures as well Mm -hmm. because, you know, I mean, we're still in touch with quite a few of these people, Mm -hmm. you know, we Mm -hmm. reach out to them, we hear from them every so often. It's not like something we just didn't then bounce away from. So So do you think it's something you're going to keep keep fighting, keep battling? Well, I mean, we did get, we showed it at a head-on photo festival Mm -hmm. in Sydney, Australia this Mm -hmm. spring. So um, it's definitely something we'd love to exhibit more in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and one of the things that was interesting about that collaboration, I mean, just in terms of working as a reporter and a photographer, you know, just trying to figure out, I mean, if, if I interviewed someone before Graham took the picture, then inevitably people cried and then they had puffy faces and, you know, but then if he took the photos before I interviewed them, then as you do when you're a photographer, you start chatting with people, you know, and I'm saying, wait, wait, don't talk about that. (laughs) So, you know, so there was a lot in terms of just getting the story, but then also figuring out how to work together and come up with these prints that had text and photos in one print, you know, not having the caption be a little tiny 12-point font off to the side that you have to lean over to read. Um, So that part of it ended up being just creatively a very interesting Mm -hmm. collaboration, and um, a friend helped us design those prints. Yeah, they're beautiful. It's it's amazing to see. So I kind of want to one final area I want to talk about we haven't touched it this is a love story too it's it's a I mean that's the runs through it and it's a messy very messy love story it's you know putting that to the piece in public on that that was because some of those moments you're like man like that's just how how did, was there any like reservation in putting in you that kind of emotional aspect? It was of it about too? two years of reservation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because, because that really is. I mean, that's to me. I was just like, yeah. I, I mean, this relationships are just messy. In the messiness. I mean, obviously, with you, you know, 
the addiction that stuff makes, but just even the normal relationship stuff and the love like, is messy, you know, yeah. and it's all there, you know. Well, how, we how, how difficult was that? Well, for me as a reporter, I mean, the thing is, you don't put yourself in the story. So, yeah. and I'm a private person, and probably way more private than Graham, but. You know, so it was a process of, you know, we worked with different editors and one in particular just really pushed and pushed and pushed me on that. And we would have these arguments and I was resistant and, you know, it took a lot of persuading for me to kind of find that comfort level. And, um, and you know, and, and I think part of it's being female, too. You feel like, well, I don't want the issue part of the story to get dismissed or downplayed because it gets marketed as a love story right, or, right. you know, or because there's sort of a sex scene in there. <laughs> yeah. and, you know. um, but you also kind of want to make it real and it is yeah. the story of a relationship. So, and I think just in terms of, you know, where we were at and trying to be honest about how for all of us, even just alcohol plays into how these, you know, this early part we're dating, you know, and, you know, you're on holiday and you're drinking and maybe you're having more drinks or different yeah, yeah, drinks than yeah. you have. Yeah. And, and I think the more it was, I was pushed on that. I realized you just, you have to be honest about how all these things are intertwined mm -hmm. for you, Graham. Yeah. I mean, I was more, much more comfortable because I'd already revealed myself portraits <laughs> and done interviews yeah. for the New York magazine, yeah. the Guardian. I'd already come up with a, heart-ranging stuff, and I'd also been on my, what Susan calls my apology tour, <laughs> which was after I got out, was to go yeah. and, you know, I pushed a lot of people out of my life, you know, including mm -hmm. my parents, who I didn't see for several years, you know, and, you know, so, and a lot of close friends who had to write me letters of recommendation for the judge to get released, so, you know, I had to go and, they call it in the, I think, making amends as it mm -hmm. was, somewhat along those mm -hmm. lines, you know. Uh, I'm not a huge 12-stepper or anything like that, but I, I felt it was important for me to go and do all that sort of stuff. So I was a wee bit more comfortable mm. about coming up with that because I mm. felt like, well, I've, you know, I've done it in magazines and I've gone to everyone and told them exactly what happened to me. Mm. So, But at the same time, you know, it was a collaborative thing. It's both of us. So, it was, yeah. you know, it was hard for Susan. She was private and it was hard for her to be as open Mm -hmm. about those sort of things and they did try to push her in a direction mm -hmm. that you know wasn't quite right so it was a compromise about how much to give mm -hmm. up and how much mm -hmm. not to give up and it's also not just you know your look but with your son too that's a big element too mm -hmm. Liam like that so you kind of have you know there's a com complex kind of love story going there as well too because part of that being sent back is that if you might not get to see him like if he's in the United States so that, I mean, to me, like, that resonated as well, too. Of like, right, yeah, because it's not just, de they call it deportation, which means, like, it sounds like, oh, you get sent away and you come back again, but it's really exile. Mm -hmm. You don't get to come back. Yeah. You know, not even for a funeral or if somebody's on their deathbed, you mm -hmm. don't get to come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, that weighed heavily on me as well, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, Susan and I decided to fight this was because I didn't even want to be in that position, you know? of being exiled for this country, you know, I did, I'd made this my home and I wanted to stay here. And also, you know, as you said, my son was here at that time. He's now in London, but <laughs> he, he, he was here and uh, I didn't want to be in that situation where I could never come and see him again, mm -hmm. and, you know. And also, you know, it was important for me that I be get out and rebuild that relationship, which had been sort of broken at certain points during my addiction. I mean, he's a very smart and understanding and, 
great guy, you know, he's a young man uh, mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. took it all in his stride. It wasn't easy, mm-hmm. but he took it all in his stride and we have a really pretty good relationship. You know, we developed a relationship where we can talk openly and he's been really supportive about, about everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, before I've outed myself in the photographs, the book, everything, we've always gone to him and said, listen, are you comfortable with this? And to the extent where he's the only person with his real name yeah, apart from yeah, us yeah, in the yeah, book because he's yeah. like, I want my name in it, Dad. Yeah. You know, and he's very proud of it. So, you know, I mean, that's... I think that resonates with people as well, that, you know, when you find recovery, these things come back to you. These mm-hmm. things that you think you might never get back or you might lose, mm-hmm. they all come back. So there's a love element in it with yeah, it as yeah, well, absolutely. you know? Which is well, very important. it's a beautiful book. I mean, I, honestly, like, I don't, I'm not, like, you, like, mostly photo books, but it was, so it was good. After I kind of finished the book, I was like, you know what? I really need to read more. <laughs> Find the right <laughs> books or, or right. know more people that are read their own memoirs. But I, I encourage everyone, we'll, we'll put a link to it. You got to go check it out. Um, you can buy it hardcover. You can do it digitally as well too like I did and there's an audio book and there's an, oh nice, yeah. nice narrated nice. by yours yeah. truly yeah. oh wow <laughs> but I just want to say congratulations it's a beautiful book it's a Thank very you. great story it's complex a lot of issues it really feels kind of now as well too so I hope people you know hope we guys pick it up I hope people read the book and, and I don't have we said the stuff. title even yet yeah we, <laughs> we, yeah, we did yeah. at the beginning Chancers Chancers yeah <laughs> we should well maybe no we'll, we're gonna leave that to the end we're gonna okay. take a quick break and then we're gonna come back and talk about photography okay. this is a photography podcast we'll be back in a second selection of photo books here. I brought a big selection and we've yeah. chosen two or three four, four of those so yeah. it's, I, there was and I have to ask this question because you lost your apartment you lost a lot of possessions and mm-hmm. I, there was one couple passages where photo books were thrown on the floor and, and like, a cop stepped through my Jules Perez picture yeah yeah, yeah. How did you lose? What did you lose? Did you lose any books, prints, or did they did that stuff come Luckily, back? during that period, I've been putting stuff away in a storage space that I had when I had a chance, and so a lot of stuff got. I mean, a lot, a lot I lost a lot of stuff. I lost a brownstone, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I managed to keep most of my records and most of my negatives, mm, and most of my photo books. I mean, there's still things that I can't find, things that I knew I had, and I'm just like, you know, and it comes back and wakes me up and haunts me at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm like, where are those negatives? I remember shooting those, and I can just never oh, find them but no, no, no. every so often I come across something that's quite especially because I've been going back and forth trying to get this stuff together for this book that I'm doing with Sun with Corey and Charlie oh yeah yeah and yeah, so yeah. you know I've been finding stuff to re-photograph for that and th- that's been an interesting process and it's also allowed me to dig deep to try and find some stuff so some of the stuff I thought I'd lost I've found but some of it sadly has gone so the first one we have here is a very it's a Robert Frank book so what's going on here? What's this, what's this Robert Frank book? This uh, Robert Frank book is, uh, I was under the knowledge that Robert Frank really didn't do commercial work. He was an artist and stuff like that. And uh, I got given this by someone in London, I think in the 
late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And it's a book, uh, I think it's Asperi, it says. It's, he did three of these, I think. And they're, it's a brochure for a shirt company, an Italian shirt company, <laughs> shot by Robert Frank on his handy old Negpos Polaroid stuff that he did so well. Mm. Uh, for uh, Lines of My Hand, I think, when he started using th that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just, uh, I mean, it's just an amazing book for me. And throughout it, there's references to people he knows and his family, like his son's in it, and Mikhail Rovner, the photographer's in it, oh. and there's a few other of his people that he's put in there. But I just think for that time, it's a really daring thing for people to commission that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And uh, as I said, I'd been given that by a friend before I moved to New York, and I'd put it away, and then I found it again when I moved to New York. And so I called him up at the blue in his Bleecker Street number and said, hey, can I come round? I've got some books I'd like. I'd like to meet you, because I'd, I'd met him in London, uh -huh. and he'd photographed my son. I've got this Robert, great Robert photograph. Frank, photograph no, I'd photographed oh. him with my son, oh, sorry. Right. I've got this great photograph of Robert <laughs> Hank Frank oh, with my son, uh -huh. and uh, I wanted to give him a copy. Oh, so nice. I called him up, and I went, and I had a couple of other books, like the first American edition of the uh, Americans and this and a few other Robert Frank books and he signed them all for me, you know, so wow. that was pretty nice. So I wanted to bring that one along, you know, because, uh, you know, I had never thought of Robert Frank as being someone that would sort of dip into that sort of world, but mm -hmm. he obviously has. And then as I've learned more about him, I've seen he did a lot of stuff for the New York Times back in the day and then he did the Tom Waits album covers and stuff like that, so... It's interesting to see what people do on the side that you never really think about <laughs> hear about. Well, yeah, we've talked to... There's been a few photographers that we talked to, and I, you know, just in my experience, you talk to them, and it's like, Brian, you know, the way we photographers make our money, you're never ever gonna see any of those photographs on the internet. Right. Like, you're just, it's not the stuff we put out, you know, it's like, we, you know, it, it, you don't right. get a byline on this campaign or whatever, and it's like, but, you know, they make a lot of money doing it, you know? Right. So that's, right. Yeah. it just seems like there is that kind of secretive, <laughs> kind of uh, aspect yeah, of I photography, mean, maybe not so much anymore these days. But it's, I don't it's think so much there. these days, but I think certainly during the 80s and the 90s, especially in New York when there was a lot of money flying around and you could shoot an ad campaign that nobody knew about and get paid many, many, many thousands of dollars and then just say, well, mm -hmm. that paid my mortgage for a year, now I can go back to doing my photography. Yeah. Because that's, you, you, I mean, you did some big campaigns in the 90s, right? I did a lot of campaigns, you know. I sort of fell into photography working like that. I don't. Or was there was it the early two thousands? When did when did you really kind of? I like started in ninety seven, ninety eight ish. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd always been taking pictures, but yeah. that's when I started working commercially, and so you know, and I I, I sort of went deep into doing commercial. A lot of editorial stuff. I did stuff for mm -hmm. W Magazine, yeah. Details, ID, you know, the Guardian, Weekend Magazine, New York Times Magazine. I photographed. Mm -hmm a lot of big people, you know, but, uh, I didn't really, it, it was weird cause I'd always just taken pictures for myself mm -hmm. up until then. And then all of a sudden I was just taking pictures for other people. And I think that sort of bothered me a lot, you mm -hmm. know, because you start getting these jobs that you're like, have you looked at my website or have you looked <laughs> at my portfolio? Because yeah. I don't know why you're asking me to shoot this, you know? And oh. I was probably sort of, no, emotionally strong enough to do some of that mm. sort of stuff because it used to really bother me sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. especially the advertising stuff. But having said that, I, it gave me the ability to travel and go a lot mm -hmm. of places and make some nice money and stuff, you know. I mean, I'd be better equipped to deal with it now than I was mm -hmm. then, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I went 
from not taking any photographs to within a year or so working commercially and flying all over the world to Japan and Africa mm. and shooting ad campaigns mm. for IBM and yeah. ESPN and Microsoft. And it was just like mm. out of the frying pan at the fire sort of. Yeah, yeah. So it's, well, well I think we'll get to this. Yeah. We're going to go to the next one. I got, I'm going to, little angle, I'm going to go there in a little bit. Okay. I want to do, I want to do conversations with the dead by Danny Lyon. Mm-hmm. So what, so this is photographs of prison life with letters and drawings by Billy McCune. Yeah. This book was given to me by a friend of mine in Scotland way back before, just when I started getting into photography. And he gave me this book. And I'd looked through it a lot. And, you know, I read up on Danny Lyon. I've got the paper negative. I know his motorbike series, you know. And I was a big, big fan of Danny Lyon, Bruce Davidson, all those guys from that era, that 50s era, Robert Frank and everyone. But this one just really I wanted to bring along. Number one, because the show's on at the Whitney and I haven't mm-hmm. seen it yet, but I want to see it. And secondly, because it shows prison life, you know, and having been in prison there, you know, it, it resonates with me looking at that. And also because the use of text and the use of very personal story about this guy that he talks about in there and the guy who does all the writings and about how traumatised he is about what he did to end up in prison and what he does to himself while he's in prison, which is pretty dramatic, you know. And, uh, you know, just the access he had to these people. And I I think Susan picked up on a review in the Times where somebody had written about, you know, the angle that he took up with the bike riders and that that he's not really... He's sort of romanticising it a little bit or something, you know. So I wanted to read that much deeper and, you know, have a good sense of what this guy had written in the times before I go to the show and see if mm-hmm. that's because he's show, saying that he's not really shown the difficulty and the pain of being in prison but as I've said before w- once you're incarcerated it is painful but you try to find the best bit of it you can to survive mm-hmm. you know so I think that's what you know there's a nice mix in there it shows you what it's like in the south I think this is Galveston in Texas and somewhere yeah, else yeah. and it's like they're on the chain gang they're out cutting you know, picking cotton all day and cutting down weeds at the side of the highway. I don't think there's too much mm-hmm. romanticizing in there, you know? So, you know, we've talked a little, you know, first part we talked a lot about prison, and yeah, this book. And I guess my question is, like, when you talk about this a little bit, how the awareness seems to be raised, I mean, in the last 10 years, it's an issue people are talking about and how, you know, the prison system is connected to the war on drugs, how it's connected to, you know, you know, the historical, you know, uh, racial tensions and like Jim Crow mm-hmm. and like the people call it the new Jim Crow. I mean, yeah, yeah. like slavery never went away. It's just we kind of shifted it to the prison system. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really it seems like there is that conversation and there's people, you know, like I said, Pete Brooke that are falling. Do you how do you feel like the state of that conversation right now? Do you feel like there's momentum going towards some sort of reform or is this really kind of like it's so embedded in our culture and it's so embedded in the, you know, corporate prison system that it's hopeless. I don't think anything's hopeless, you know, so I like to think that things can be changed, you know. I think it's an incredibly hard fight and, you know, police accountability and corrections accountability and prison accountability is such a low, it's unbelievable, you know. I mean... The, the guys who killed, uh, what's his name? Gray? Freddie Gray. Freddie yeah. Gray. Yeah. They all got acquitted. Yeah. It's crazy to me that that can happen these day and ages, that so many people can be killed and such violence can be laid up to people in jails and stuff like that. And then people just walk away. There's no accountability, mm-hmm. you know, and these people still retain their jobs and they still retain their pensions. And so it's like, you know, 
there, it's nice to see that Seabrook got arrested for, you know, misusing pension funds mm -hmm. and that these three cops or five cops recently have been on corruption charges, you know. But I think that it's endemic within that system, I would probably say, you know, and it's because of lack of accountability and lack of people being prosecuted that they just keep getting away with it. And then when they get fined or they, anything happens, the police union steps in and it's like... And the taxpayer pays for it at the end yeah. of the day when the people file multi-million dollar lawsuits against the police department, mm -hmm. the corrections department. It doesn't come out of their pension. It doesn't come out of their funds. It comes out of ours. Mm -hmm. comes out of my paycheck. But there's, I mean, there's also this American mythology of, of you know, the, the cop, you know, the cops are the, the good guys. No matter what, the cops are the good guys. These are, I don't these think are the that's, people, you know. I think that's well, been debunked. I, I know, I, well, I 100% <laughs> agree with you, but I'm saying grown up in the Midwest, like you come oh, up yeah. in the American kind of like sensibility, it's like the police, you know, you respect the police, you know what I mean? It's like the highest kind of like reverence at least i don't know maybe i'm maybe my yeah. lily white minnesota kind of like <laughs> i saw serpico at quite a young age so i was sort of like uh, tainted by that you yeah. know that police corruption but, but it's a it's a white perspective i mean it's a privileged right. white perspective of the police right really. and that's kind of you know that's that part that's difficult to shake loose you know yeah it is you know but um i think uh, i think it's going to be a slow slow journey to get that mm -hmm. changed, you know? Even Obama, he went with Vice Magazine to some prison recently, you know, but can you imagine how controlled that was? Oh, yeah. That was totally controlled. Yeah. He's not, I mean, I mean, it was great, but it was mm -hmm. pointless. Because mm -hmm. he's not seeing the worst of the worst. He's not getting access. These people have been vetted right, left and center before mm -hmm. they're allowed anywhere near him. And so that's problematic as well, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, but I think that Reform can come and it will come and people just keep to keep banging on at it, you know, and mm. maybe it needs more privileged white guys getting locked up to <laughs> take that message out. Not really. Yeah, definitely. For you sure. know, I mean, there's a lot of people doing good things around Rikers Island or around, mm. you know, cutting recidivism and bringing education back into the mm. jails. I mean, our big problem is that we're, all these things are punitive. Mm. Prison is punitive. And it's called the Department of Corrections. It was designed way back when it was called that to correct bad behaviours mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. With some sort of punishment, but also education and teaching you a better way. That's all fallen by the wayside. And we now have a punitive system that mm -hmm. does nothing for people. And then we wonder why we have the highest rates of incarceration right, in the world. Right, right. And, you know, because we don't offer people anything else. Mm -hmm. But you, so in, when you were in the immigration detention, that's when you got on... You went on a program, right? It was. Mm -hmm. It was. Uh, how would you describe it? it? Was what was this program? I mean, it was. It was. It a, was, it was a, a therapy. Six, or was sixteen it, yeah. week cognitive, re cognitive mm -hmm. rehabilitation, cognitive therapy rehabilitation. You know, it wasn't like a hardcore twelve step program mm -hmm. or anything like that. It was just. It was all about rational thinking and sharing with people and group talks mm -hmm. and everything like that. And it was sort of. It was mind altering for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it just. It really changed my outlook on everything. You know, because you're in a prison and you're sharing with. You're in these group meetings with people who are like disenfranchised. You know, they've mm -hmm. grown up in situations that I had no relationship with whatsoever to you know and yet you're realizing that they're, they're human beings as well and they've got failings but they've got good points as well and mm. they're a lot of them are victims of circumstance you know poverty disenfranchisement you know like making bad choices mm. that 
it seemed right at the time. And I don't think people should be punished forever because of that. And, you know, even for me, coming from where I was and then back out here and the support I've had for people, I still have to carry around the fact that I have a criminal record. It makes me hard to get an apartment. I can't get a credit card, you know. When I go for a job, they ask me if you've ever been arrested, you know. Mm -hmm. When you go to apply for citizenship, it affects everything, mm -hmm. you know, and it never goes away. And that's just a misdemeanor drug possession mm -hmm. one time in Rikers mm -hmm. Island. And a lot of people, it's just like, once they're caught in that, it's so hard for them to get out. You can't mm -hmm. get public housing, you can't get welfare, you can't mm -hmm. get this, you can't get that. It's designed to crush people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it should be. It should be yeah. There should be rehabilitation and education mm -hmm. and things that are put in place to make mm -hmm. people not keep making the same mistakes. And how much of that is, is tied to the war on drugs? How much do you think, like, if we had reformed the war on drugs, that part of this would lead to reform in the criminal justice system? I think it would reform the criminal justice system, you know, because they have these mandatory sentences, and, mm. you know, they certainly did for a long time, and they still, to some extent, do, but mandatory sentencing for small amounts of crack cocaine, that people get 25 years and stuff like that, and that's destructive to communities and families and individuals, you know? So, yeah, the war on drugs... Mm is only perpetuated, yeah. <laughs> you know, everything that is meant to address. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's the way forward, you know. I think everybody agrees on that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So you got to check out the Daniel Lyon show. How long do you zoom in now? I don't know. It just opened last just week, open. so I think it's on for three months. So the next one we have is um, In Flagrante, and that's Chris Killup. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this book. Um... It has a mind of its own. Yeah. It's been uh, on the show many times. I love this book. I first yeah. saw this work in London when I, I did my postgraduate at the Royal College of Art. Mm -hmm. And I think he came in and did a talk, or I was introduced to it at some point then. I just thought it was mind-blowing that this guy had managed to shoot all this on four by five. And he's such a little <laughs> quiet-spoken guy, and yeah. he's so like unthreatening. and just like. Mm -hmm. But at first, when he'd gone there, that I told him he get lost you don't want it so he just got himself one of those little trailers and camped out there and became friends with him and I think that what he's captured is such an important part of those Thatcher years in Britain mm. it's a documentation that goes beyond anything I've seen of that era you know I mean Martin Parr's done his thing Paul Graham's done his thing the only person that came close was Graham Smith mm -hmm. who's a m much sort of ignored British photographer from mm -hmm. that era. He mm -hmm. was in that show, uh, Britain during the Thatcher years, that mm -hmm. showed at MoMA. Mm -hmm. And there's a catalogue for that, which I tried to find to bring, but I couldn't find it. But I think I saw I saw this at Yossi Milo Gallery. Mm -hmm. It was up there two months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just, it's amazing. an amazing set of photographs. It's a fantastic set of photographs. And, you know, there was a few in there that I hadn't seen, but mm -hmm. it's just so heartfelt and strong. And it comes from... Paul Strand and it comes mm -hmm. from Kadelka mm -hmm. and it comes from that deep, meaningful, mm -hmm. you know, I need to document this. This is, mm -hmm. you know, and at that time in Britain was a very tumultuous time, you know, minor strikes, disenfranchisement of people that were on the edge of society mm -hmm. and, you know, these people who collected coal on the beaches and stuff. I think, I think it's an amazing, beautiful book. Yeah. And, and it's the, still powerful now. The pictures too. I mean, like, we, you know, obviously these, you know, he's, it's the photographs. You yeah. don't need any fancy text on this. It's just like every photograph is a beautiful photograph. Yeah. Composition, moment, like everything comes in there. And, you know, we, we're we in this age now where it's almost, it seems like and that type of work is that, you know, it's not, 
as relevant as it once was, but I still think it is. You know? It's also that, you know, you can tell he's embedded with these people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I've just bumped into these people for a little bit. He spent years on this, you know, and got to know them. But there's not that sentimentality that sometimes comes with that or mm-hmm. that sort of lack of sort of being objective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still, it's cold, but it's warm. It's harsh, but it's sweet. It's mm. just, it's, it's spot on. It's, and it's an amazing book. And it, yeah. I've seen the work two or three times in exhibit and it's just really, it resonates with me every time. I could go back and look at a lot of these photographs a lot of times, yeah. even the one with the can of beans. <laughs> the supermarket with other yeah. baked beans. Yeah. I read an essay that someone wrote once about the political situation in Britain based on the crack that was gone down in the fallen down bean cans. <laughs> I can't, can't remember who wrote it, but wow. it was amazing. But, you know, I mean, it's been re-released. And the weird thing about it re- being re-released mm-hmm. is that the layout is completely different. Now I looked at it so oh, many really? times. That, yeah, oh. some of them are that way, oh. and so you have to keep flipping the book, and it's yeah. it's really difficult to look at, you know, to avoid the the bleed on the gutters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't mind the bleed on the gutters mm-hmm. because that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But um, I just this picture is so amazing it's <laughs> yeah. so brilliant and when you read the backstory about the guy just getting out of jail and he's uh-huh. just his friends taking him down to the ocean and over in the backstory mm-hmm. of those photographs are amazing oh, wow. as well but yeah I think it's it's, it's it's just a beautiful beautiful book the printing's beautiful the pr- everything that he addresses in the book is great you know and I think he's a teacher up at where is he Harvard Really? Yeah, Chris Killop. He's oh. somewhere here in the US. He's been here for a long time and uh, he teaches. I mean, so, somebody will fact check us. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm sure he's at Harvard. Yeah. You know, I know he's not Yale or uh-huh. Bard or anyone. I'm sure he's at Harvard. So speaking of teaching, you've been, you've been teaching. Yes. You're at Parsons. Yeah, I'm an what? adjunct at Parsons in your school, yeah. And what are you teaching? Photography. <laughs> um, I teach in the photography de- yeah. department, mm-hmm. which is part of the art, media, and technology. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean that's been that was a lifesaver for me. Mm-hmm. The guy that hired me, funnily enough, who was the director then, used to be my intern at Howard Greenberg Gallery, oh, wow. and subsequently, when I became a commercial photographer, he was my assistant oh, wow. for a couple of years. And then he was another one that I sort of. I was so shame-based about my addiction, I sort of pushed him out of my life and he kept trying to I'll read back these emails of people that kept reaching out to me and he was one of them. And that he wrote me a fantastic letter of support for immigration to get me out, you know, and then he offered me a, a stand-in to cover, cover this guy here, yeah. Mark Woodward, my good friend, yeah. <laughs> was there the very first day I walked into Parsons because wow. he was one of my students. Wow, wow. And uh, I was, yeah... So I was a bit out of my depth, I thought, but I sort of shook it up a little bit and, uh, you know, did what I had to do. And I got invited back to teach more classes and more classes. And now I'm sort of contracted in as a sort of adjunct and I really enjoy it. You know, I teach, there's been years where I've done analog, the core curriculum on mm-hmm. analog and medium format, a lot of Roland Bass, Susan Sontag, yeah, that yeah. deep stuff, you know. Then there's other times where I've had electives where I've taught portraiture classes mm-hmm. and last year I 
uh, I did a class that I suggested, which mm -hmm. was working in conjunction with the New School for Social Research and the mm -hmm. Humanities Action Lab, where we did uh, visualising incarceration mm -hmm. for an exhibition called States of Incarceration, mm -hmm. which is showed at the New School in April and is now touring for two years. Oh, wow. And we had a bunch of students who all took different approaches to mm -hmm. visualising incarceration. Mm -hmm. Some of them were very literal. They went up and interviewed and photographed people on the bus that goes to Rikers Island. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them worked with people on re-entry, others used prison writings and did conceptual pieces around that. Somebody mm -hmm. made a 3D piece based on solitary confinement that was a soundscape. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it was a pretty open-ended thing, mm -hmm. you know, but that that was my class that I sort of introduced to the course and it still exists as a documentary practice. Wow. And this year I'm doing it this fall and we're going to make it about uh, more community engagement, looking at people like Disturb and mm -hmm. people who've taken it out into the streets and not having it just sit on a server and get too tied to, you know, how can we engage? Do like Zoe Strauss did like yeah. I-90 project, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. go into the communities and take your work back out there yeah. and see how it resonates with people and see what you get from that. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency now with photography for people to be, you know, stuck in that, I'm researching it to death and then I'm using screen grabs and they're not really experiencing the world and the people that are out there. And even if they come back to that way of working, I think that that engagement with people and getting to share in other people's experiences is enriching. Mm -hmm. And also for students, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that uh, it's good for students to get out there and embed themselves with things and see things and understand things and read around things politically, socio economically everything mm -hmm. it gives them a wider outlook on life so you know i mean that's why i think these courses are important so what what do you what do you think of these this these generations of photographers that are coming up i mean there's a lot obviously photography they you say is going through a lot of change changes <laughs> and there's a lot you know there's a lot of discussion about that um a lot of books talking about you know the stuff that's happening you know a lot of the internet-based work, a lot of studio-based work, and, you know, there's just kind of this idea, I think, that the photographs might not matter as much anymore as, like, the context or the idea, the concept. You know, you'll see these rants every once in a while that'll go viral on the web. And, people, and you yeah. see it in red, I mean, you're like, this is, uh -huh. yeah, and I think, to me, my overall kind of feeling is that it's like, this old the, the the that way of working that was kind of the foundational is just it, there's a diversity of approaches and there's a lot more happening and mm -hmm. I think there's a sort of mentality that can't kind of wrap their heads around right these I different mean, types of approaches. My feeling is that some of them are really great and then some of them are just over theorized and conceptualized yeah. to yeah. death. But at the end of the day, the pictures don't really mean that much. Mm -hmm. No, everybody. I think Doug Rickard's project was brilliant. The mm -hmm. New America one it mm -hmm. was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, so many people jumped on that wagon and now they're all doing it. And he 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 didn't just bounce onto that in a week. Mm -hmm. He comes from a background where he's a really smart guy, you know, and he researched that for a long time and it comes through his upbringing and his views on poverty and race and society and his education and whatever and so it resonates and it's visually amazing mm -hmm. but so many people thought oh that's the way to do it I can just hey I don't even have to go out and engage I can just sit and do screen grabs mm -hmm. of things mm -hmm. and the danger with that is that yeah, you can produce some visually interesting stuff, but it's got no depth. Mm -hmm. You're not, it's not coming from a real experience or a real sort of way of 
understanding the world. Mm-hmm. So the, my problem with that is that it's become easy for people to jump into that and not really, from a direct experience or a really sort of deeply philosoph- philosophical viewpoint or a sort of socio-economical viewpoint or they're not really trying to say anything that resonates that much to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Some are, but some are not. And there's a tendency sometimes with art schools to over-theorise stuff and conceptualise it. And at the end of the day, let's face it, we all like a good picture. We all know a good picture. Yes. And if it's not a good picture, no amount of talking is going to make it a good picture. <laughs> but I, I would say we definitely agree with that. Um, you have some stuff coming up. You have, I mean, you've, you've, you had a book called All In, right? And that was by yeah. Little Big Man. Yeah. And that was, so you did the, these were all the little heroin bags. The heroin bags, right, yeah. That you had. So you had that book. And what, so what else do you have kind of coming up? I mean, I kind I mean, of feel like I'm hearing your name. You got stuff with the works and... Yeah, I mean, it's so weirdish. I've been shooting some stuff, but, you know, I really... I've been digging into my archive of stuff and finding stuff, you know. At first, mm-hmm. I was just posting it on Instagram and thinking, oh, wow, this is amazing. I thought I lost this and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is nice. And, oh, look mm-hmm. at these Polaroids and contacts and blah, blah, blah. And then this old punk stuff started appearing, you know, and so, you know, there was people started following me and liking it and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, likes a like, you know. <laughs> and, like then, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then Corey yeah. and uh, Charlie yeah. reached out to me and says, we love this stuff. We want to come and look at it. Mm-hmm. So they came to the studio and looked at it and uh, they were like, we want to do something with this. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really know it first and I had other stuff that I felt like I, I don't want to just scan it. Because that's so, it's not very creative, but some of the stuff lent itself to be scanning. But what I've started doing is I've started doing these still lifes, and I'm not a still life guy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm trying to push myself out of my comfort zone and use mm-hmm. this archival stuff in a creative manner where I'm doing sort of studio-based still lifes and mm-hmm. somewhat conceptualising how to look at this yeah, stuff yeah. and put it in context. So it's a series of still lifes of, you know, scrapbooks, newspaper cuttings, mm-hmm. records all that sort of stuff interspersed with these snapshots I took and people took of me mm-hmm. back in the 70s and punk ephemera and trying to work it out in that sort of scrapbooky manner, mm-hmm. you know. So it's been a challenge for me. It would have been quite easy if I just scanned it on and said, okay, we can throw this up. But <laughs> I wanted to challenge myself to get myself out of that comfort zone of just... You want to make a good that. book. You want to make a good Yeah, I want to book. make a yeah. good book. And I met with Corey yesterday and he was really excited about it. And I've got a really good designer for Pentagram mm. who's really... who's done a lot of redesigns in magazines mm. and stuff like that. And he's very, very smart. He did our American Exile thing and he's mm. really on for doing this and he's a great typographer. So nice. I think it could be really, really mm. good, you know. So mm. I'm pretty excited about that. And then I've got another black and white project that I'm going to make a fanzine sort of thing mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. which is I wasn't a photographer when this was going on yeah, yeah. you know it was like take your dad's picture go and see the cl- take your dad's mm-hmm. camera go and see the clash <laughs> take two pictures sneak it back in his drawer and yeah. then at Christmas time when he got it developed he'd be like what's this you know, take, I'll take those so you know that's where those pictures I was like yeah. 13, 14, 15 yeah. but then like maybe 8 or 9 years later when I started taking pictures uh, when I was in Edinburgh, you know, I took these black and whites and they're more considered and stuff like that. And it's crazy because I'm looking at these negatives that of pictures I took rolls and rolls of film and I, I didn't even contact sheet some of them. I just wrapped mm. them up in paper and mm. developed them in my bathroom. 
And so I'm going through, digging through that archive and thinking about ways of putting that out there, you know. I mean, I want to keep taking, and I'm still taking pictures, but I don't want to just say, I'm not going to look at that because it's old, because yeah. it's relevant now. And, there's, and it's not nostalgia, but it's just looking back at certain periods of time and thinking, mm -hmm. wow, that was Edinburgh in 85. That's 30 years ago. I was a kid at the time, yeah, but yeah. these bands that I saw and these buildings that I photographed yeah. and these kids in derelict mm -hmm. buildings and stuff, it's all changed. Well, that's it. I mean, there's, there's that of that part of that documentary evidentiary yeah, part yeah. of photography and like I had I showed one of my book dummies to a friend of mine he's like I like this but this little won't be good until like 25 30 years from now <laughs> you know what right, I mean right. because the pictures a lot have a different kind of resonance and I've noticed that too obviously I don't I can't go back 30 years but I you know 10 years it's been and I go back to stuff 10 years and like it just it feels different it looks right, different yeah. I don't know there's something to it, and I, I, I really believe that there is it, photo books or photographs are like it's, it's wine. It has to it ages right, yeah. the way it ages or the way human beings age. You know, there's just something. Yeah, but eventually that, wine goes bad. Well, <laughs> whiskey, I don't know, whatever. Right, yeah. Yeah. Everything goes bad, right? You know, but. I don't know. There is something too right. Too hot. No, I mean, time. It, I, mean I can still look yeah, back yeah. at FSA stuff and think it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's not because of nostalgia. It's because of the importance and the relevance mm -hmm. of those images and why they were made and how they were made and what they say about society at that moment in time. So, you know, I have a knee-jerk reaction to nostalgia mm -hmm. and that romanticism of times past. But mm -hmm. I also have a great love of true depictions of yeah. eras that show something that you're just mm -hmm. like, wow, this really resonates because. Mm -hmm. You either didn't experience it, or you did experience yeah. it, or it was at a certain time. But it, mm. these documentations are important. Yeah, and just and, history. And, you know, like, I do feel yeah. there's a sort of push towards like, oh, documentary's dead, street photography's dead, and all mm. that sort of stuff. And I think that's a dangerous attitude to take because mm. you know some of the more popular shows that I've seen have been documentary shows, either by contemporaries or mm. older people or past stuff. You know, and people still love looking at pictures. They, shit that's going on you know <laughs> shit yeah, that happened yeah. like other people's lifestyles there's a curiosity within us mm -hmm. especially visual people but just just about everybody you know people want to see that you know they, they really want to see how other people live and how other people present themselves and it's just how you present it like I think Brenda Ann Keneally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is a fantastic photographer mm -hmm. I mean her, her work is amazing you know that stuff she had at uh, Photoville yeah, last photo, year was yeah, just yeah. Breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she presented it in a way that was, and it's again, it's that taking it back to the community, sharing, mm -hmm. bringing it back in, twisting it around, you know, like that's important. And she, you know, people like that are so undervalued. Mm. I really think yeah, they're yeah, very, yeah, very undervalued yeah, in this world. They get they get yeah. lumped in with a whole bunch of rubbishy people. Yeah, and yeah. bad attitudes towards that type of photography. But I, I really believe that people like her and there are a few other people like that that are so. Yeah, I mean, because that's that lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. You choose that path, mm -hmm. and it's just like yep. you know, there's no riches at the end of this. You know, for most no. of them, it's not. So you have to be yeah. fully invested, and that's why I don't. You know, I'm not. My photographs, I feel like I, you know, I work during the week. I'm not going to go do a weekend kind of like documentary. Right, right, right. Probably like you, I have too much respect for people like Brendan and Keneally who like go all in and fully right, invested yeah. for me to come and, you know, be a weekend warrior. And so I choose to do other stuff. But then I think you're right. Those people are just, you know, we don't, they just, they aren't valued. They don't, we don't understand like what they're really kind of sacrificing to, to yeah. make that type of work. You know? Even someone like Matt Black. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. What a talent. Yeah. I mean, amazing.
Yeah, he's an image maker. And he didn't he just pop out of the blue. He's been at it a long yeah. time, yeah. you know. And then people are like talking last year, like as if he just came out of the and under yeah. a stone or something, you know. Yeah, he, I but re- he's an amazing image maker and a really important documentarian, you know. I remember really seeing Hasami said there was like a video going around and he was Matt Black was like, This is you know, uh, this is my home. This is where I grew up and he's like I'm, I don't need to go anywhere else. This is what I'm going to mm-hmm. photograph, and I'm probably going to die photographing right. this. And he was just very, you know, very kind of straightforward. And like, this is, this is what I'm going to do, you know? And I, that to me is like... Is that I, the California stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's obviously but he's doing some assignments. The, the, but the, the road trip he did, the road trip, the poverty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was stunning. Yeah, and he's using Instagram. Yeah, you know, in, he's in using Instagram really too, well yeah. as well, yeah. So yeah, those, I mean, I think we're in agreement. I think a lot of people yeah. listening are in agreement that those people are undervalued. Um, probably all photographers. Yeah. It's kind of a thankless profession, right? I don't know. A little bit. At times. At times. <laughs> so we're going to, Susan's been absorbed in the books, but I just want to kind of throw it back to you. About what, what do you have coming up? Anything we want to talk about, we should know about? I keep joking to Graham, I'm going to change professions entirely and, you know, take up gardening or something. (laughs) Not, I mean, we're still promoting the book Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing interviews and trying to write some things about topics related to the book. So I think, you know, mostly focusing on some of these issues for a while, you know, both the incarceration and immigration detention um, is going to keep happening throughout this year. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, I don't know yet. I don't know if he's kind of... uh see what happens yeah you probably yeah. learned a lot that you don't need to plan too far ahead might not no I mean it's just it's been really intense mm-hmm. and you know honestly just to have weekends back you know because we we signed a contract for a book that was about half the length of what we ended up writing mm-hmm. and I'd never done a book like this so you know Literally, it's I've got this list a mile long of you know book dentist appointment. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So catching but, up, catching up on life. Yeah, so just you, having yeah. space. I mean, I think creatively, like just to have that, I don't know space. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're a writer or a photographer, and and see sort of what bubbles up when you're not committed to something, mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, absolutely. And I think also stepping away from the computer, and <laughs> um, just living in the world more mm-hmm. also is very inspiring and just rejuvenating. So there's a lot of exhibitions that I want to see and places we're going to be going. But um, Yeah, we're going to go a few places with a book. We're going to Michigan and Vermont and L.A. to do book readings and stuff like that. So, you know, they keep us busy. But, you know, I mean, I think... Susan really doesn't do things by half measures. I know I don't, but mm-hmm. neither does Susan. When she takes something on, as she said to me when she was fighting my case, I play to win. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same with the book. You know, I mean, I was just like, there was times I was just like, wow, I kind of keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all in. We did sign up for way more than, for something about half the size, but we took it to another level. And it was, I mean, we worked every single day practically. I mean, I had some, not as much work as Susan, you know, because she had to deal with my bad writing sometimes and, you know, keeping my head up above water. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a tough one. It was really, by the end of the book, we were done. done. So we, you mentioned that we may not, the book is named Chancers. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I was like, what? hell is this all about the name and you do you do there is a little brief passage in the book where you kind of explain what it means but i just want want you guys to explain what is it what does chancers mean 
Well, when I grew up in Scotland and certainly in I and and in mm-hmm. Ireland and Britain, per se, the, the word chancer is sort of used for a variety of reasons, you know. But it usually means somebody's a, a bit. When I was growing up, somebody's a bit cheeky, somebody who takes a chance, somebody who pushes it when they shouldn't really be pushing it. You know, it's like you know trying to. Like, like when I got into the Royal College, you know, after having done a painting degree and hadn't really taken any photographs and people were saying, you're such a chancer. <laughs> you know, it's like, you, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's just that cheeky, quirky, mm-hmm. sort of like, I'm going to try that, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be a little more derogatory, depends, but for, for us, it's like you take chances on things, you know, mm-hmm. you see if they work. And I took a chance with drugs and it didn't work for mm-hmm. me, you know, but we took a chance on each other or certainly Susan took a chance on me mm-hmm. and it did work, you know, and it's like, that's really what it's about. Would you like to expand on that? Beautiful. No, I think you can. I mean, I think that it's it's hard to find titles these days. You know? <laughs> and then you go through all these things yeah. and then people weigh in and things like that. But we, we needed something that kind of captured, first of all, that it was like sort of a book by two authors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it did encompass a lot of the themes there. But just this idea, you know, yeah, I took a chance on Graham, but then he took a chance you know, in fighting his case to be able to stay here in immigration detention and just kind of overcoming addiction, you know. And I think we wanted something that wasn't a negative title per se that sort of got back to this idea of, you know, one thing we didn't want to try to do is say that we have all the answers about these things, you know. It's like you can take what's helpful from our experience, you know, what worked out positively, but also all the mistakes we made along the way, you know, and I think the title, it was important to us that sort of captured that hopefulness of it. Excellent. Well, I think you did. And thank you guys so much for having us. No, thank and you. Again, again, it's a beautiful book. I, I want you. all you people listening, even if you just look at photo books, you're just here for get pick up the book, read it. There's, there's it's a lot going on. It's, it's just, it's just a, I think it's a beautiful work of art, beautiful piece of history and storytelling. So, congratulations. there are photos in there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. there are. There there's are. a picture between each chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of that, yeah. yeah so. And a picture on the cover. A picture on the cover. So, again, thank you guys. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks again for joining us. You can go behind the scenes of this episode, see the work of our guests and the photos we discuss by visiting our Tumblr and lpvshow.com. If you'd like to support the production of the show, this year we are offering a subscription for $20. As a subscriber, you will get exclusive access to our weekly email newsletter, which will contain a bonus conversation about some of the interesting stories we find on the web. Also, at the end of the year, we'll be raffling off three awesome photo books exclusively to our subscribers. We appreciate your support and hope you continue to enjoy the show. If you have any questions, please feel free to send them to info at lpvshow.com or connect with us on Twitter at lpvshow. The LPV Show is executive produced by Brian Formals and Tom Starkweather. Our score is by Tom Starkweather, who also mixes the show. Special thanks to Eddie Volanti and Brett A. Davis. Thanks for listening.